Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Middle East Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Assad, one of the co-hosts of the channel and your host for our conversation today. Our guest today is Afshin Martin Asghari, and we'll be talking about his latest book, Both Eastern and Western, An Intellectual History of Iranian Modernity. Dr. Afshin Martin Asghari holds the title of Outstanding Professor of Middle East History at California State University in Los Angeles. He was born in Iran and completed his PhD in Middle East History at the University of California in Los Angeles. As a young student in Iran, he was active in the international movement of Iranian students during the 1970s and took part in the 1978-1979 Iranian Revolution. He is the author of Iranian Student Opposition to the Shah, which has been translated into Persian, and he has authored more than 20 articles and book chapters on 20th century Iranian political and intellectual history. His latest work, which is the subject of our discussion today, is entitled Both Eastern and Western, An Intellectual History of Iranian Modernity, published by Cambridge University Press in 2018. It is a provocative and timely intervention in Iranian studies and modern Iranian intellectual history. Professor Afshin Martin Asghari deftly challenges the conventional binaries that characterize both scholarly and public discourse on Iran's historical trajectory leading up to the revolution uh, as a conflict between, quote unquote, the religious versus the secular or the traditional versus the modern, or as the title states, the Eastern versus the Western. Martin Asghari traces the construction of Iranian modernity in the 20th century by framing it as a complement to ongoing projects in global history. In doing so, he argues that Iranian modernity cannot be seen in isolation to global trends and concludes that the history of modern Iran is both Eastern and Western. So without further ado, I welcome Dr. Afshin Martin Asghari to our podcast. Welcome, Professor. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on your program. Thank you for for joining us today. Um, So, Professor, you've just published this phenomenal work in intellectual history with your endnotes alone spanning a staggering 85 pages covering the literature on the subject. 
and you take us on quite a journey throughout the book. Here at the New Books Network, we have a tradition to always begin our interviews with a historical background and intellectual history of our interviewees. So would you be able to take us on a little bit of your personal journey? I mean, you were active in Iran's student movements and you were present in the country during the revolution. So I'm quite sure that you have a story to tell. So what is it that brought you up until this point and what led to this book and made you into the uh, academic that you are today? Uh, I was born in Iran and grew up there and stayed in the country until I was 19, finished high school there. And already, uh, by the time I finished high school, it was the mid-1970s. And I was somewhat politicized uh, because uh, even uh, the high school uh, milieu, at least in Tehran, was uh, rather political. So when I left Iran as a high school graduate, I I was somehow, um, had left these ideas. Also, had family members who were political, and that had influenced me. And so, once I came to the U.S. in 1974, I started going to meetings of uh, Iranian students who were active against the Shah's government. I was never a very kind of active activist. I mean, I did go to protests and demonstrations, but I gravitated towards the fringes of this movement. Uh, people who um, kind of identified as intellectual leftists, and they were critical thinkers. They were, did not identify with any particular faction or grouping, but uh, they're more interested in uh, some kind of critical understanding of leftist issues. And uh, so that was my affiliation with this movement. That was two or three years before the revolution, and then the revolution surprisingly happened. And so I went back to, uh, to join and take part, and that was in uh, December 1978. So I spent less than a year in Iran, uh, the fall of the Shah, the formation of the new Islamic Republic. And uh, again, I did not join any particular movement or organization or party, but I was pretty much active. I wrote... Uh, journal articles, um, you know, took part in all kinds of street events. And then I came back to the U.S. just before uh, the U.S. Embassy was taking hostage in Tehran to uh, continue my education and uh, basically stayed in in the U.S. Wow, incredible. Um, And it eventually led you toward publishing this book. Well, what happened was I uh, was uh, very quickly uh, disillusioned with the direction the revolution was taking. I I was never really uh, uncritically enthusiastic about the leadership. And uh, uh, by the summer of 1979, the few months after the revolution, I had decided that my side, which was kind of like the more democratic left had had lost and there was no chance. Uh, So when I came back to the U.S., it was a question of uh, going back quickly to to Iran to join a revolution that I knew was not going where I would have liked to see it go. And then there was the hostage crisis. There was the Iran-Iraq war. And uh, I wasn't necessarily enthusiastic about you know, joining the war effort or, so I ended up a political exile. 
and decided to stay in, in the academe as sort of a refuge. Well, you, you, your story sounds very much like a number of uh, Iranian intellectuals and thinkers in the, the Western Academy. It's, uh, it's, quite, it's quite, um, quite powerful. Um, so let's let's work let's work through this book now because you you, you know you you do a lot of things here. First, you uh, you know let's let's start with chapter one. You begin first here by problematizing the persistent notion of the modern Iranian nation state as a continuation of pre-modern quote unquote Iran as an empire, and one of the most one, one prominent British Orientalist who, who popularized this notion was Anne C.S. Lambton, whose conception of a Persian government, quote-unquote, to describe pre-modern Iran was itself colored by nationalist conceptions of the nation-state. And so here you talk about how the Qajar kingdom was characterized by this Muluka al-Tawa'if paradigm, a political structure of smaller coexisting tribes or factions similar to Europe's feudal system of fractured authority. And then following this, you situate the genesis of Iranian modernity with the nation state and its attendant ideology of nationalism. And you go on to talk about how Iranian modernity um, and its watershed event, i.e. the constitutional revolution, was more intellectually and politically similar to the Russo-Ottoman model than a Western one. So can you tell us a little bit about how the Iranian state the early Iranian state and its modernizing intellectuals interacted with this quote-unquote Russo-Ottoman model? Um, and what were those processes and what, what, what forms did they take? Yeah, thank you. That's a very good question. Uh, you know, the argument you mentioned about uh, discontinuity between modern Iran as a nation state and pre-modern Iran as something definitely other than a nation state political entity, perhaps a failed empire. Uh, that was one of the main points that I think is still not addressed enough in the historiography of, of Iran. There's still attachment to this continuity model of Iran as if Iran as a nation existed, if not in perpetuity, at least for uh, a thousand years or two thousand years. So my argument was no, we have to make a categorical distinction between Iran as a nation state and pre-modern Iran, whatever it was. Now, uh, the question of Russo-Ottoman model was again, I think something that uh, I emphasize for the first time, I have not seen it argued by uh, people write in Iranian historiography. Usually the argument, there are several intellectual histories of modern Iran, and usually there's a question of Iran's interaction with an entity called the West, which is itself never clearly defined. It's not clear whether by the West they mean Western Europe or a particular uh, you know, European model, whether it's uh, English parliamentarism or, or French, or the notion of the West remains unclear. But my argument was whatever the West means, Iran, uh, when it's uh, modern, uh, the project of uh, thinking about modernity, or which I identify with the modern nation state, when that project begins, there's no direct interaction with the West per se, but there's a very clear and, and consistent interaction with 
Iran's neighbors and these two, the most influential neighboring influences are those from Tsarist Russia and then the Ottoman Empire. And both of these have modernization projects that are quite similar to, in some ways to each other, and they are similar to modernization of the Vajar era continuing into the 20th century. And also intellectually, I would argue the influences coming from the Russian Empire and from the Ottoman Empire are paramount in shaping the origins of Iranian modernity. Interesting. And so would you say now that going on into your next chapter, um, that there was somewhat of um, a Western, quote unquote, Western influence, but much, much later on, um, specifically coming out of um, Germany? I have a chapter uh, called the Berlin Circle, and that's the story of um, a number of uh, nationalists, the, the, actually the, the most influential of the first generation of Iranian nationalist thinkers, uh, gathering in Berlin during World War I, because during that war, uh, well, something important has happened already, the Constitutional Revolution, the so-called birth event of the modern Iranian nation state has occurred in early 20th century. So Iran has a constitution. And I have an argument that Iranian constitutionalism, more than anything else, must be understood in terms of a conscious patterning after Ottoman constitutionalism. Because the young Ottomans in 19th century had very carefully and systematically adapted constitutionalism to Islam. And that was done a generation before Iranian constitutionalism and Iranian constitutionalist thinkers were very much aware of the Ottoman model and I would say consciously followed it. So Iran had a constitution, but it was basically on paper before it could be implemented and become something institutionalized and meaningful. And Iran was occupied from the north by uh, Russian forces and from the south by the British. And so the constitutional project was up in the air, suspended. Uh, but a group of Iranian intellectuals who were actually exiles during the war, they gathered in Berlin because Germany was the enemy of their enemy. Russia and uh, the British Empire occupied Iran. Germany was their enemy. So naturally these people gravitated to Germany and the German Reich was um, promoting this kind of intellectual opposition to its rivals, and so provided them with support even financially, and it began publishing journals and periodicals, trying to articulate, I would say, a kind of a, not just a conception, the first conception of Iranian nationalism coherently conceived, but also they tried to um, anchor that within a worldview. They, they had to find a place for themselves and for Iran as a hopefully modern independent nation state somewhere in a world that was itself turned upside down by uh, during, uh, in the middle of the war, it wasn't clear what the outcome of the war would be. And uh, Germany might have very well won the war in 1916, 1917. It appeared that way. And so they aligned themselves with Germany. And that's the, the Berlin circle of Iranian intellectuals. It's, it's interesting, this intervention, because 
here you show that the, the conceptions of enlightened despotism and authoritarian nationalism began to take root among Iranian intelligentsia, not through supposedly perennial or innate patterns of quote-unquote Iranian despotism, but through the influence of the, the German political culture of 1920s Berlin. Um, and as a corollary to this argument, you also demonstrate that you know, there was nothing inevitable about the authoritarian nationalism which emerged in the 20s and 30s. And I think this is something key here because oftentimes we hear in the, the historiography um, and even in public discourse that the, the authoritarian nationalism was something that, you know, was an inevitable consequence of that time period. Yes, no, that's an important point. There's an Orientalist conception of this perennial Asiatic or Oriental or Islamic despotism. Uh, you mentioned Lambton is one of the very influential Orientalists who has argued this. Uh, and I, I'm not arguing that Iran was ripe for you know, democracy or anything like that. But, I, but I'm saying, as you pointed out, that in the middle of World War I, you have a rather fluid situation where the articulation of Iranian nationalism can take different directions. And the outcome of this war and the events that happened during this war are very crucial in giving shape and direction to Iranian nationalist ideology and nation-building project. And the authoritarian nationalism that you see emerging under Reza Shah in the 1920s is the outcome of this process that is not predetermined. Perhaps more authoritarian tendencies had a kind of a stronger chance anyway, but there were other countervailing tendencies uh, which were forcibly removed. The fact that they were forcibly removed means that there was no kind of inherent, inevitable outcome that had to be authoritarian. The authoritarianism won out. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'm jumping a little bit here, but we, this can perhaps also be said about the, the 1978 to 1979 revolution. That was, was it, even then we can say that it was not, necessary outcome that Khomeini and his camp would win over. It was what had happened due to the historical contingency. I would be curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yes, we can. My book doesn't really go into the period after the revolution, but I agree with you that, again, the outcome of the 1978-79 revolution was not given. And the reason that's obvious is there was a very intense uh, power struggle after the revolution uh, over its outcome and events such as the hostage crisis that put the U.S. into an enemy camp of the Iranian revolution, which was not where the U.S. was in the beginning. The U.S. early on was not opposed to the formation of the Islamic Republic, but it was the hostage crisis that turned everything around. And then the war with Iraq they gave a context and a direction that made the outcome of the revolution very different. So now 
going going back now to the 40s and the 50s, um, in one of your chapters, you identify quite a few prominent figures. I'll just go down the list and, and name them and some of their their contributions, and maybe we can sort of um, unpack them and, and and the ideas that they promulgated during this time. Um, one of the more the more prominent thinkers you identify is Ahmad Kasravi, who was critical of Europe and quote unquote Europeanism, um, as well as clericalism, um, the latter for which he was eventually assassinated. There was also a young Khomeini who published his first polemical work, Kashf al-Asrar, in defense of Shi'i Islam against the criticism of secular intellectuals like Kasravi. Uh, you also name Fakhreddin Shadman, who wrote The Conquest of European Civilization, which in a way reduced Iran's dilemma to a cultural one and argued for the assimilation of modern European culture into Iran via a translation project of European cultural forms into Persian. Um, and then the fourth intellectual you identify is Jalal Ala Ahmad, who I'd like to speak about a little bit a little bit more, um, who wrote the infamous Garb Zadiki, or West Struckness, um, which critiqued Shadman, but also Iranian society as a whole for too readily abandoning their quote-unquote cultural authenticity. Um, so can you... For our listeners who may be not so familiar with the the trends taking place in Iranian history and historiography, can you give us a picture of what the intellectual debates looked like between these figures and their interlocutors in the 40s and the 50s? Sure. Uh, I tried to make this uh, fairly intelligible in a few sentences. Uh, the generation you mentioned, the generation of 1940s and 1950s, I refer to as the missing link in the intellectual genesis of this quote-unquote anti-Western or authenticity discourse that is articulated very strongly in the 1960s and 1970s and is obviously some kind of an intellectual background to the revolution. So in my discussion of 1940s, 1950s intellectuals like Ahmad Kasravi, uh, Jan Khomeini, and Shadman, I'm trying to show that there was a precedence to the uh, discourse of Al-Ahmad and others in the 1960s and 1970s, or, or Shariati for that matter. Kasravi and Shadman were different. Kasravi especially was perhaps the most important figure in, uh, in that era, because as I try to show, he's very important in articulating a very influential critique of what he called Europeanism, and that is uh, a kind of a wholesale imitation of European ways, what is later going to be called kind of Westernization. He calls it Europeanism. He's also very critical of clericalism. Uh, he's an Islamic re reformist at first, uh, but tries to purge and purify Islam from superstition and what he calls clerical despotism. But then he carries this um, critique farther into beyond clericalism, into uh, rejecting Shiism itself as a kind of superstition. And eventually he carries it beyond Islam and he comes up with his own idea of a new kind of a deistic religion of, uh, he calls it re re religion of purity. Uh, and for his radicalism is assassinated by Muslim terrorists. Um, uh, now, 
the connection to Al Ahmad is a bit more complicated. Uh, if you want me to talk a bit more about Al Ahmad, his Garb Zadegi, I try to argue, is not his most important work, although unfortunately it's his most influential work. Um, can, can, you, can you share a little more about that? Garb is a small pamphlet that he wrote. Uh, almost in a rush in the early 1960s. And I do admit that it was highly influential because perhaps it kind of captured the feeling of the moment. He had his hand on the pulse, intellectual pulse of the moment. And the arguments in Arab Zaregi are rather incoherent and contradictory. And even Al Ahmad himself later on more or less admits to it. Uh, it's, it's a work that is more or less in line with trends that were coming together across the world, critique of the West, kind of anti-imperialism against neo-colonialism, the idea that culture, an authentic national culture was important in resistance to colonialism, ideas of the third world. So Al-Ahmad is more or less in line with these trends. He read French and he was you know, aware of of intellectual scene of the 1950s, 1960s. He came from a socialist or Marxist background. But here in Garb Zadegi, he argues that a form of resistance to anti-colonialism would be some holding on to national culture. And how did he define this national culture? Or was it this sort of floating signifier for him? In Garb Zadegi, it's not very clear. Uh, and he talks about religion, he talks about Islam, as also as a connection uh, that intellectuals can make with ordinary Iranians, with the masses, who he argues are religious. But he never really is clear, in Garb Zadegi at least, uh, what this might mean. Now, I have uh, an argument in my book that if one really wants to understand Al-Ahmad more fairly, we have to read his last book, which he published after Rav Zadigi. It's a substantial work, three, 400 pages. And in it, he lays out his ideas more clearly, more coherently, and is not exactly arguing as he does in Rav Zadigi. It's a work on intellectuals and Iranian intellectuals. I think that is the proper legacy of Al-Ahmad that thinks him a more careful and thoughtful thinker, rather than Arab Zadegi, which is a sloppy word. Now, what distinguished Allah Ahmad from Shariati in terms of the, the message of their discourses? We do know that Shari Shariati came a little bit later, um, but what was is, what was the distinction between the, the messages that they both imparted? Allah Ahmad uh, was a former communist, at least in a phase in his life, he was a member of the Tudeh party, uh, and when he wrote Garb Zadegi, and he died in, in the 1960s, 1969, I believe. Uh, by that time, he was not exactly a uh, Marxist, but he was definitely a socialist. And he was also interested in this cultural resistance to anti-colonialism and imperialism, which were the projects of Garb Zadegi and his last work. Uh, Shariati was younger, and he too was formed by, this is an argument that I make about Shariati in, in my book. I want to emphasize 
Shariati's background and intellectual formation and his association with this movement of God-worshipping socialists, uh, which was again uh, an important but really not very much studied or understood movement of 1950s Iran in reaction very much to the influence of Iran's communists to their party. And God-worshipping socialists, as, as the title of their organization suggested, were a socialist organization. They just argued that uh, they also believed in God. Although, as you see in the name of this, their organization, they called themselves God-worshipping socialists, not Muslim socialists. So the idea of religion was something more nebulous. It was some kind of a deist concept of they believed in God and they were not materialist, and yet they were socialist. And Shariati was a young Shariati and his father. They were both members of this organization. And my argument is to understand Shariati, we have to go back and look at the ideas of God-worshipping socialists. Shariati then expanded these ideas, but uh, his first major work is called Abu Zar, the God-worshipping socialist. And I think in many ways, Shayati remained within the paradigm established by God-worshipping socialists, although I understand that, you know, his period of studying in France exposed him to new ideas. I would say he clarified and expanded those ideas, but in essence, I would say his ideas were formed even before he left Iran in the 1960s. This is a great tra transition into my next question. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about what you call, quote, the mid-century moment of socialist hegemony, end quote. You write that among the least studied ideological trends in pre-revolutionary Iran is Islamic socialism, which was another reaction to the two-day party's far-reaching influence. Now, the two-day party, as we know, was easily one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, leftist parties in the Middle East at the time. And I think the point you make about its prominence resulting in the emergence of competing movements that offered similar and overlapping programs is crucial because we often see in the historiography um, a framework that, must, quote, Muslims and Marxists were always these two separate discrete and distinct camps. And if I'm not mistaken, you argue that the picture is a little bit more complex. Um, so I was wondering if you could share with us a little bit about the obscure genealogy of Islamic socialism in the historiography and um, what case you make for the Islamic socialists. Exactly. Precisely as you said, I emphasize that mid-century moment of socialist hegemony and in that, Iran is not alone. That, that is the moment of the birth of the third world. And you look at every single one of these third world uh, countries, especially the leaders, Egypt under Nasser has some kind of Egyptian socialism, uh, Sukarno, Indonesia, somewhat leaning towards a, an idea of at least mixing socialism with uh, Indonesian nationalism, same thing in India. So Iran was no exception. And Iran had a very strong communist party uh, because, as I argue in, in that chapter, uh, it's not so much that the communists were super kind of powerful intellectually. It was that you had an empty scene. There was no one else to compete with them. So they completely and totally occupied 
the political and intellectual scene. So therefore, all other influential movements inevitably had to either define themselves in reaction to socialism and Marxism or somehow overlap uh, and interact with it. And from the other side, even the two-day party at first tried to blur the distinction between Marxism and religion and even claimed that the religion of the two-day party was Islam. Uh, that was kind of a deliberate lie. It was a tactical <laughs> move. But uh, there, was, there was an attempt from the other side to blur distinctions. And therefore, you have something like the God-worshipping socialist, which is, uh, you read their literature, it's a typical third-worldist socialist movement. Um, at the same time, it, it argues, and I think sincerely, that uh, they have some kind of metaphysical beliefs, belief in God. They're not, they don't believe the clerical kind of idea of Iranian Shiism. They don't. They don't deny or reject it, but they basically ignore it. Uh, and I think this uh, God-worshipping socialist is one of those, you know, ignored missing links. Shariati, arguably the most influential Muslim intellectual of pre-revolutionary Iran, comes from that background and is not alone. I mean, at that time, you see that thinkers like Ayatollah Talibani writes a very influential uh, tafsir, uh, interpretation, commentary on the Quran uh, with socialist leanings. And you can see also in the discourse of Khomeini himself in the 1970s especially, traces of socialist influences. It begins to talk about the downtrodden and the mustazafin and capitalist exploitation and imperialist, things that were totally and completely absent from his discourse in the 1940s when he wrote Kashval Asrar. It seems that the influence of socialism and the Tudor party was so strong that it even compelled the Shah to implement reforms along socialist lines with his white revolution. Could you talk a little bit about that as well? Exactly, precisely. That's, that's a very important issue. And the Shah at times even claimed to be some kind of socialist. But the most important project of his entire period of rule was the first, it was called the White Revolution, then it was called, the name was changed to the Shah People Revolution. The very fact that it was called the revolution shows the influence of revolutionary leftist ideas and the major points of the White Revolution, which was a social reform project, incomplete, conservative, nevertheless real. The most important point was land reform, which no other political party except Iranian leftists, going back to the time of the Constitutional Revolution, it was the project or the proposal of Social Democrats. And then in mid-century, the party that consistently advocated land reform was the Today Communist Party. And uh, another point was uh, women's rights, giving women the right to vote. That was, again, the party that advocated that very uh, persistently was the Today Party. Uh, naturalization of uh, uh, nationalization, I'm sorry, of natural resources was also a leftist agenda. And uh, the Shah very consciously uh, took that up and made it his own. 
and sort of made it an ongoing revolution, like Trotsky's permanent revolution, a revolution that would never end, added to it different kind of welfare projects. And so uh, I attribute that to, uh, again, the continuing hegemony of leftist ideas and leftist discourse, even though the left itself was defeated and driven underground, its ideas were still hegemonic to the Shah, in a sense, capitulated to them or picked them up. It seems like both the Shah and the, the Islamists reappropriated uh, and repackaged these leftist discourses. And it, it, it appears to be especially prominent in the 60s and the 70s. So let's, let's move on to that period. Here, you identify three major discursive formations. Um, and you say that the first two were counter-modernist and politically right-wing, uh, categorically rejecting Western modernity along with democracy, liberalism, and Marxism. But the third, um, which I think follows from the points you made earlier, was a leftist or Marxist-inflected reading of Shiism, which had a crucial role in the ideological preparation for the 1978-1979 revolution. Could you talk a little bit about these three discursive formations and the contestation between them? Um, with regards to Iranian modernity leading up to the revolution? Well, one of, one of the things in the background of these uh, discursive formations is in that chapter, I also argue that uh, the Shah's regime, in some ways, again, capitulated to the discourse of authenticity and the anti-Western discourse, and it picked up a form of that discourse itself. Uh, because these ideas were so strong and so influential. But as you pointed out, my argument is that there were different articulations of the critique of the West or a return to some kind of Iranian authenticity. Some of them could be right-wing or conservative um, and uh, secular. Others could be religious, Islamic, and right-wing. Some could be kind of clerically inflected, others not so much. But I think the most important or the most influential of all of them, even though there was some overlap between all three, the most influential because you see its significance during the revolution was the leftist inflected Islamist discourse most prominently uh, recognized in Shariati, but there was also Iran's Mujahideen uh, Khal, the leftist guerrilla movement, whose ideas in many ways overlapped with Shariati, except that they advocated armed struggle. Shariati at some point uh, was drawn closer to them, but then I think towards the end of his life, he, he went back on that and was taking a new direction. Of course, he died young, and it's not clear where he might have ended up had he stayed alive. If he had lived a natural life, he would have been alive during the revolution, and it's not clear uh, what position he would have taken. But his ideas were clearly uh, on the side of the Islamic left, which I argue was the most influential of these uh, discourses that were very critical of Western models. And yet, if you look at Shariati, you see a lot of ambivalences. It's not exactly clear if he is rejecting these uh, quote-unquote European ideas. One of them would be Marxism. He is very critical of Marxism, and yet at the same time he admits that 
is also influenced by it. Right, it's one of those um, contested uh, conversations that we'll, we'll never have um, the ability to find out and it will continually be debated. And I guess that's what really makes this, this field and this, this particular subject so interesting. Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time, Professor. Um, and so I'd like to, we have a tradition here now of concluding with uh, a teaser for our listeners. Um, so I wanted to ask you now, are there any projects that you are currently working on that we can look forward to seeing in the future? Well, I wanted to thank you again for giving me this opportunity to talk with you and have your listeners uh, listen to a discussion of my book. New projects, I'm kind of continuing to work on intellectual history, hopefully now kind of looking at the scene after the revolution, which I didn't get to in this book. But I'm also putting together a collection of my previously published uh, articles and book chapters with a thematic focus on the Iranian left. So hopefully that, that work will come out within the next year or so. Well, sounds wonderful. I look forward to reading it. Um, there you have it, listeners. It is, again, both Eastern and Western, an intellectual history of Iranian modernity by Professor Afshin Matin Askari. Get your hands on it as soon as you can. Thank you, Professor. Thank you very much.